0: I'll give you a little bit of background on my talk today. It might seem like an odd topic. Um, we were at the house one evening talking about a conference, and we were having to decide on speakers and topics and so on. And I said to Simon, you know, we apologists, we're always talking about logic and critical thinking, and that that's important. And we tell people, you know, you have to be able to think clearly, and we expect them to be able to follow the arguments for God's existence or whatever. But we never take the time to show people a little bit of what that looks like. Now, you can't teach a whole logic class in a a short session like this, but you can at least give them an introduction and perhaps try and prove your point about logic. And um, I shouldn't have said that because then for that conference, I got given the job. (laughs) And so his words were, well, why didn't you just prepare a topic? And so I found myself doing it. And I actually enjoyed it. It's definitely different from the other topics. It doesn't have the content, but sometimes I think we jump the gun and we give the content before we really have the tools to deal with it properly. So that's what um, this morning's talk is going to um, be about, is sort of giving you a few of the tools for thinking. Like I said, it's not comprehensive by any means, but to get you thinking about the way you think, um, which is sometimes an odd thing to do, but it is a special capability that we have as human beings just by... nature of beings that we are so we look at that and usually i start the talk off. maybe i irritate people with my question but i ask whether um, for people in in the audience to raise their hands to to tell me if they can read of course everybody's like sure i I can read and then my next question is um, to raise their hands if they've ever taken a class in formal logic and usually it's only um older people people who are still trained in sort of a classical education who have come across some class and logic. Most of them haven't. And then I move on to this little quote by a woman named Dorothy Sayers. Um, You might have heard of her. She was a contemporary of sort of C.S. Lewis at that time. She was a playwright and a scholar, and some would argue a philosopher. Um, But one of her sort of burdens was the changes that were happening in education at that time. So she writes this in 1947. She says, For we let our young men and women go out unarmed in a day when armor was never so necessary. By teaching them all to read, we have left them at the mercy of the printed word. By the invention of the film and the radio, we have made certain that no aversion to reading shall secure them from the incessant battery of words, words, words. So even those who don't like reading are still going to get words through Mm -hmm. film in her days. They don't know what the words mean. They don't know how to ward them off or blunt their edges or fling them back. They are prey to words in their emotions instead of being masters of them in their intellects. Um, And then she goes on and she says, um, We were scandalized in 1940 when uh, men were sent to fight armored tanks with rifles. We are not scandalized when young men and women are sent into the world to fight mass propaganda with a smattering of what she calls subjects, and she's referring to the modern way of education where students just get taught subjects but never how to think about them. And when whole classes and whole nations become hypnotized by the art of the spellbinder, we have the impudence to be astonished. We dole out lip service to the importance of education, lip service, and just occasionally a little grant of money, and we postpone the school-leaving age and plan to build bigger and better schools. The teachers slave conscientiously in and out of school hours. And yet, as I believe, all this devoted effort is largely frustrated because we have lost the tools of learning. And in their absence, we can only make a botched and piecemeal job of it. So she's arguing that there are certain certain aspects of education that we've let go of that are fundamental to being a human being and understanding the world that she was living in and I would argue all the more. And so one of the tools that she argues is missing is the formal teaching of logic. So she says, it is here in the teaching of formal logic that our curriculum shows its first sharp diversion from modern standards. The disrepute into which formal logic has fallen is entirely unjustified. And its neglect is the root cause of nearly all those disquieting symptoms which we have noted in the model, modern intellectual constitution. She names a whole bunch of problems that she's seen in the way that people think and interact with material. And so she says, this is the root, is the fact that we don't teach logic. Logic has been discredited partly because we have come to suppose that we are conditioned almost entirely by the intuitive and the unconscious. We don't need to learn how to think. We just do it sort of automatically. That's the human, That's that's our idea nowadays. We just... You can do it simply because you're human, you don't need to be taught how to do it. There is no time to argue whether this is true. I will simply observe that to neglect the proper training of reason is the best possible way to make that true. That we will ultimately just be influenced by our intuitions and not by good reason. So, isn't it interesting that in 1947... She makes this argument, and she talks about books and films. I wonder what she'd say if she knew know the way we are bombarded today, if she knew about, you know, the power of the Internet and television to just infiltrate our homes and just, like she said, words, 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 words on a screen, words spoken to you by the news presenter or um, words in the newspaper that you read, just stuff that we get. And so we are fortunate as Christians to live in a part of the world where we, we are not persecuted or martyred for our faith in the, in the physical sense. But we do live in a time where we are bombarded with arguments against it, secular arguments specifically, arguments from other faiths. And so that is, in a sense, where our battle lies. And so all the more for us as apologists or as Christians to be able to reason well, to be trained for this fight, so that when this bombardment of words specifically against our faith arguments against our faith come, we, we know how to deal with, with what is being said. And that's where we need um, logic. So um, let's look at a couple of... Did I? Okay. First, I, I want to try and make my point. Have you ever listened to a conversation in which two individuals um, of opposing ideas are talking it's just really frustrating because it feels as if it's going nowhere. It's just like nobody is saying anything, and I, I can't put my finger on it, but something is wrong. That was my feeling in 2011 <laughs> with the, with the pres- presidential debate. Both of the candidates, now, granted, I don't have the firmest grasp on American politics, but I kept feeling as if, number one, they weren't answering the question that was asked. And they were—they seemed to be saying the same thing over and over again, whether it was relevant or not. And when they were addressing each other, it was like they were in two different rooms. It had nothing to do with the other. And I felt terribly f- frustrating. Um, and so I felt a little like um, Dorothy Sayers' metaphor, one of those unarmed soldiers. There's all these words and all these things they're saying. And I struggled to make headway, to figure out what was actually going on. And I think that is the way that we often feel in our modern day with so much propaganda going on. And so I think neither I nor the candidates had the ability to move forward in our reasoning in an ordered um, and manageable way. And I think that is um, one of the skills that logic will teach you. So without logic, (laughs) the words that bombard us are like a big pile of, you can either think it's manure or sand, and you don't have a shovel. Logic gives you the shovel to deal with the pile of stuff that gets thrown at you every day intellectually. So let's talk a little bit about what is logic. Um, oh, okay, I put these guys up there because they would be um, some of the modern-day atheists who bombard us with arguments against our faith. I don't know if you know them, that's Richard Dawkins, and Sam Harris, and Christopher Hitchens, and Daniel Dennett, they're, they're the, known as the Four Horsemen. Okay, so some definitions. Some of these are a bit formal. The Oxford Dictionary says reasoning conducted or assessed according to strict principles of validity. So meaning reasoning done in a way that's not just willy-nilly. There are certain rules um, about the way that you reason. That's the Oxford Dictionary. I um, I can give this PowerPoint to Pastor Jeremy. If you want it, then you don't have to scribble it down. If there's something extra that you want to do, feel free, but don't feel as if you've got to scribble it all down. So um, logic itself actually studies, um, it doesn't study, study reason itself. It studies how it is that we reason. So it's one step back. Um, it's the tools that you use to think. Okay? Um, it's the study of right reason or valid inferences and the attending of fallacies. It's the fancy word for sort of logical mistakes formal and informal. We'll talk a little bit more about what that means. Um, it simply means, I like this one, this is plain and straightforward, putting your thoughts in order. Um, here's a here's one that I find most helpful in its broadness. Number one is an instrument of human knowledge. So like I said, it's sort of a tool that you use. As a discipline, it involves the study of the science and art of right reasoning. It's a science because there are certain rules by which you which you used to think. But it's also an art because you have to be skillful in how you apply those rules. It takes a little bit of reading into the situation if you want. And so it's a bit of both. It's both um, a study of of the science and then of the art. Um, and directs the faculty of reason so as to enable one to advance with order, ease and correctness in the act of reasoning. What does that mean? It means you move forward in a way that's comfortable in your thinking and that's what i was missing in that presidential debate just feel like I, I wasn't going anywhere and sometimes when simon and i have arguments like oh, we're not making any headway here why why is that that is okay and it's usually because you don't want to think about it but there's some sort of logical fallacy going on there we haven't defined our terms properly and so we're missing each other or um we are one of our premises is not true or something like that and so Even spousal disputes (laughs) can be broken down to some of these arguments sometimes. Okay, so that's what we aim for. Ease and correctness in the act of reasoning. I don't know about you, but that to me seems like a relief. Wouldn't that be good to be able to trust your own thinking and to know that once you work through something, you're actually, you're, you're going somewhere. You're making progress in the way you think about things. And that's what logic is supposed to help you do. Okay, so why... Why do logic? Why worry about the way we think? Um, the first thing I would say is, logic is unavoidable. Simply because you are a human being, you are going to think. Your intellect is just a natural part of what you are. Animals don't have that, they're intuitive, they, are inst- they, they function on, on their instinct. As a human being, even if you're never taught how to think, you will be thinking because it's just the way that you are wired God has created you with an intellect and from pretty much the moment you open your eyes the first time you are using that um, faculty and so um, even if you don't want to do logic you have to you can't escape it Um, the principles of logic are undeniable (laughs) somebody says logic is old fashioned it's just a waste of time we shouldn't do it well what is that that's actually a logical argument. Two premises in a conclusion. It says, logic is old-fashioned. Things that are old-fashioned are a waste of time. Therefore, logic is a waste of time. It's a logical argument. So you're using a logical argument to argue against logic. You just can't escape it. Even in arguing or denying it. Now, you can choose not to use it and do things that are completely irrational. But you can't deny logic without actually employing it. Everything we do is based on these thinking skills. Everything we say is as a result of us using our intellect. And so we might as well learn to do it well, I think anyway. Um, the next thing that people will say is, well, logic doesn't work. It doesn't help for me to present a reasonable argument because people in our day and age, they're just not reasonable. They don't care whether the argument you know, holds. If they don't want, if they don't feel like, listening or they don't feel like believing they just won't do it that's all good and well the reason why we're here though this morning is not to convince other people as a christian somebody who believes that god has created you given you as gifts of your nature the faculties that you have you should be wanting to think correctly even if you don't convince anybody by your correct thinking it is your responsibility to make sure that you think well and so before you worry about them We should worry about ourselves and whether the way we think and this includes of course this is my fourth point the way that we think about god if we are supposed to read the scriptures and to make inferences from them and as scripture teaches from nature around us about god we need to be able to think well i think a lot of the misinterpretation that we get of scripture is as a result of people not being able to think clearly not being able to think logically um, both those who present the word, but also those who sit in the pews and listen. Um, we we are sometimes unable to pick up the fallacies that people who exposit the Bible make, because we don't think well, sometimes just as poorly as they do. And so um, in order to know God and know Him well, we have to think well. We have to be able to think well. Now this doesn't say, um, people will sometimes say, well now what you're doing is you're saying, Unless we have logic, we can't have God. So you're sort of raising logic above God. Um, No, logic does not come above God in the order of sort of createdness. God is always the first being. And I believe that it's through him that we have our reason and he was given our logic. But for us as human beings, the way we know logic has to come first. We have our ways of thinking and then we encounter God through our thinking skills. So again, it's the tool we use prior to. We don't raise it above God, but we use it to sort of attain knowledge about God if you want. Okay. Now, in a way, my talk today, talking about fallacies, is a little bit putting the cart in front of the horse. If you were doing a class in formal logic, you would learn a whole bunch of principles about logic first, and then you would actually learn the fallacies. But the fallacies, they're the fun part. Because this is where you see it really playing out. So this was tricky about preparing the talk. For the next few minutes, I'm going to have to give you a few of the fundamentals of logic and the process and some of the more technical terms. And then we'll move into some of the fallacies that you you will be able to handle there and hopefully take away with you and look out for in in the world out there. And, And hopefully I'll convince you to consider picking up a book in logic and working through it and learning some more of the technical things. Okay, so... Aristotle, way back when, um, identified three acts of the intellect, three processes or three things that the intellect does. Now, he didn't discover these. Human beings were already doing this in his time. He just sort of recognized them and gave them names. Okay. So he would say that the first act of the intellect, the first act of your mind, is what he calls simple apprehension. Okay. So he says, all human experience begins with sense experiences. There's nothing that you know that you haven't seen or smelled or touched or heard. That is how you become aware of the world around you. That is your first source of awareness. Okay, so it begins in your sense experiences. And then what you do is you ask a primary question of everything that you experience. And that is, and it's what little ones ask sometimes, what is it? What's that, mommy? Okay, so as a human being, one of the first things you do when you have a sense experience of something, is you ask the question about the nature or the essence of that thing, the whatness, what is it? So um, I use the example of Eva, my oldest. The first picture she ever saw of a rabbit was in a storybook. So she would say, what is that? And I would say, the word, it's a rabbit. And then um, we would see a rabbit on an Easter card. And she would say, what is that? And I would say, it's a rabbit. And we'd go for a walk on the farm, and we'd see a bunny in the cage, and she would say, what is this? And I would say, a rabbit. And soon, I didn't need to tell her that what she was seeing is a rabbit. Even though it wasn't the same as ones that she saw before. For example, she'd, she saw a little ceramic one on the mantelpiece in a friend's house, and she said, rabbit. Okay, so what had Eva done? She had learned the whatness of that thing. She had formed what we, what we call a concept. So it's sort of a picture in your mind. Now, this is tricky, because if I say to you, rabbit, you can't think of rabbitness. You think of a specific rabbit, right? Think of the picture in your mind when I say rabbit. There's no picture for rabbitness, but you know what rabbitness is when you see it, or chairness, or treeness, or humanness, or animalness, okay? That's the concept that you have. In your mind and then what we do is we attach a term so that's the actual name that's the word rabbit now what's interesting is I taught Eva the word for it in Afrikaans which is my first language which is the word Haas it's like the, the Dutch word for it so Eva has the concept of rabbitness but the term that she used for it the name was Haas okay and this is of course what makes translation possible because as human beings we have the same concept we see the same thing the rabbit but we use different terms for it okay so the English person says rabbit The Afrikaans person says Haas, and I'm able to translate your word for it to mine because I know the same concept. We see the same thing, okay? So that's the first act of the intellect, the whatness. Um, Now, when you do logic, this is the first question you're going to ask yourself is, my terms, are they clear, okay? Or are my terms ambiguous? This is the fault that comes here. Um, Now, this is easy when you do something like rabbit, but when we come to more complicated com- um, terms, for example, socialist or communist, OK, we have to be in our thinking clear on what those concepts mean. Back to Simon and I, when we argue, OK, pick a word that we're bickering about. Chances are our terms are not defined clearly. He means something different yeah. by what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> OK, Um so this is the first thing we have to ask ourselves in that conversation when we're making an argument. Are my terms clear? And am I using them consistently or am I secretly, sneakily switching their meaning as I go? You know, when I mean the term, when I use the term at first, I use it in this way. And then a little later, I've really sort of changed the meaning the way I use it now. So we have to be consistent and clear in the way we use our terms. That is the first. So terms, they can't be true or false. It's not Whether I pointed that thing, rabbit, is not true or false. It's just rabbit. I must just be clear in what it is. Okay, so that's the first act of the intellect is apprehension. The second one is judgment. This is where we take these terms, and we now start saying something about them. We we put two terms together. So I have the concept of animal, and I have the concept of rabbit. And now I make a proposition. I put them together. I say... All animals are, all all rabbits are animals, okay? Now, I'm relating the two things, and I'm actually making a judgment. I'm asking the question, is it, okay? Propositions can be true or false. It could be false that all animals are rabbits, or it could be true that all animals are rabbits, okay? So one becomes the, the predicate, and one becomes the subject, the subject and the predicate, and we make propositions about them so i could say something like all democrats are socialists right this is a proposition i need to define my terms clearly i need to know what i mean by democrat and i need to know what i mean by socialist and then i can make a judgment about whether this is in fact true whether these two concepts can be related in this way that is what we call a judgment okay so it's a declarative sentence this is that or this is that and um, those can be true or false right you need to go feel feel free to go yes Mm -hmm. no no problem you'll you'll probably have to look at some of mine so I'm very grateful (laughs) to you for doing that okay I can't wait to see him by the way I'm sure he's grown up a lot as well okay so Judgment's true or false. Does that make sense? Stop me if there's anything. Okay, and then we come to the third act of the mind, which is reasoning. Now we relate the propositions. So we've built terms to propositions, now we relate propositions, and this is where we build arguments. So all arguments are constructed of three things. Two premises, as are usually, um, this is what we know already, statements that we take to be true, that lead to a conclusion. Okay, this is how we come to know something new. We say, I know thing one, I know thing two. If both of of these are true, then it implies that thing three is also true. And this is how we move forward in our thinking as human beings. Um, There are two types of um, reasoning. The first is inductive arguments. So this is where we say, that rabbit has long ears, this rabbit has long ears, all the rabbits I've ever seen have long ears. Therefore, all rabbits have long ears. Okay. So I go from particular instances to the general. As you can see, that's not 100% certain. That really leads leaves us with a probabilistic outcome. Because there could be somewhere in the world some species of rabbit that I just haven't seen that has short ears. But because we as human beings are limited in our nature, we often have to go by the best inductive argument that we can have. And so inductive arguments are valid in the sense that as long as you have used all the evidence you have around you, you are within reason to make that judgment until of course you've proven wrong and then you have to change um, your argument. But then there are also deductive arguments and these are the ones that yield certainty. So if I say something like this um, no dogs are rabbits. Alfalfa is a dog, therefore Alfalfa is not a rabbit, okay? I've gone from two general statements to one final conclusion, and because my reasoning is valid from my two premises, I get a conclusion that follows, okay? And that conclusion is certain. It has to be the case that if no, rabbits, or no dogs are rabbits, and alfalfa is a dog, Enough alpha is not a wrap. It follows. It has to be right. You like see it's it? A, it's a true false judgment the yes. yes. And so what we say then is the argument is valid because the two true premises yields a conclusion that must necessarily follow. Now, it doesn't say an argument can be valid even when the premises are false. So when I say something like, if I say... Um, let me think of one with a false premise. Um, all. All. Okay, this is going to be silly, but all I can come up with now. All stones are animals. This is a stone, therefore, this is an animal. It's still a valid argument. Problem is that my premises are not true. Even if you did the dog, you uh, dogs are rabbits. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So if I, um, the question I have to ask first is whether my premises are true. So it could, the the, um, argument, this is why we don't say that arguments are true. Arguments can't be true, they're valid or invalid. Um, So false conclusions can still yield, I mean false premises can still yield a valid conclusion if you want. The argument works, the problem is that my premises are false. So that's what I'm going to determine first. Now. Deductive arguments, like I said, they can be valid or invalid. I'll show you an invalid one. Here's an invalid one. Um, I told you the one. Okay, so here's a valid argument, one that works. It says all rabbits are fluffy. Thumper is a rabbit. Therefore, thumper is fluffy. Okay? Premises are true. Conclusion follows. It works. Like I said, even if those premises weren't true, the conclusion would still follow. So it's still a valid argument. If my premises are true and the conclusion follows the best type of argument you can have, then we say it's sound. Okay? That's just the technical term for it is when you know that the premises are true, the conclusion must follow, you've proven what you're trying to show without a doubt, then we say the argument is sound. Then a person within reasonableness must accept that conclusion. Okay, so here's one that's invalid. Listen to how subtle this one is. All rabbits are living, living thing. Therefore, my husband is a rabbit. And so um, the prepositions are true. <laughs> he knows. I, I ran and passed him first. Um, the pre- my, my two things, and my husband is a living thing. Okay, those are both true. Yet the conclusion doesn't follow. So there's a problem with my reasoning okay there's a there's a fault somewhere in there in the way i've arranged those terms okay and that's one of the more that's one of what we call the formal fallacies of logic okay so all that to say when we come to arguments we've got to ask ourselves three questions number one are my terms clear number two are my premises true those initial statements where I relate the two terms, are they true? Is it true that all rabbits are fluffy? Is it true that Thumper is a rabbit? And then three, is the, is the reason, reasoning logically valid? Does the conclusion follow from those two premises? Now, in order to be able to know that for formal logic, um, there are a whole bunch of rules that you learn. And so they call it what they call the square of opposition. And you learn to recognize the type, the type of proposition it is, and you know how they relate together. So you can even without necessarily understanding what the, pro- what the um, propositions are saying, what the premises are saying, you can determine whether the argument is true or false simply by looking at the way that we don't have time for that thing to, today. That's the fun part of working through some of these books. They they all have the little exercises at the back and you can sort of test your knowledge of it and try and work through it. And then it becomes fun to be able to take a newspaper article and to carefully break it down into the argument. Because most people who want to convince you of something, they're using an argument. Yeah, they're writing a whole long article, but really what they have in there are two premises and a conclusion. Maybe you can have more than two premises, so a bunch of premises and a conclusion. And the skill for you as a reader is to be able to recognize the premises, to be, take away the fluff, all the adjectives and the you know flowery language around it, and to say, he's saying, this is true, this is true, this is true, therefore, this must be true. If you can do that then you have come a long way in your thinking. And this is what we do in books, whether we read Christian literature, whether we read um, secular works, what you're looking for is what is the author's argument? All the stuff that he's saying, Okay, maybe to try and show that a premise is true, if you can take that away and say, here is the argument of this chapter, or of this paragraph, or of this book, then you are making progress in your thinking. Now, like I said, we don't have time to look at all of the... um, what we call the here, let, me, let me do this. I said that. Um, the formal fallacies, we're going to look at the informal ones. Logic can be divided into two parts. There's material logic. These are sort of these are the contents of the arguments, the building blocks. If you're building a house, you have the plan or the structure, and you have the actual material that you're building it with. So material logic is the stuff. These are our propositions. what I'm actually saying. what are rabbits? Am I defining rabbits correctly? Is it right to say that animals are rabbits? That's the material stuff. The um, formal logic, that's more the structure. That's the plan of the thing. So the formal logic is what we don't have time for, but we do have time this morning to discuss some of the material fallacies, the second one there. So a fallacy is simply a mistake in your reasoning. Okay? Try and figure those out, or in other people's reasoning, is when you argue in a faulty way, Material fallacies are mistakes in the content of the argument. Formal fallacies are mistakes in the structure of the argument. So my one about my husband being a rabbit, that had a formal fallacy. Isn't it? That was in the structure. There was nothing wrong with the content. The content was just fine. Um, but what we're going to look at today, and I think this is what is most common in society, are material fallacies. It's usually a problem with the content. It's usually picking up on some sort of untruth, or badly defined term in what is being said. Right, so let's look at some of these. And this is, this is sort of the fun part. There are a whole bunch of them. <laughs> if you read some of these books, um, and people seem to be coining more and more of them. But if you can try and remember a few of these, and as you listen to somebody speak, or as you read something, as you listen to yourself speak sometimes, um, if you can look out for them and ask yourself, hang on a second, Mind making one of these fallacies, and it becomes it will ruin you forever, because you will um, you will be unable to read anything or listen to somebody without thinking about it critically, and actually wanting to stop them and say no, hey, hang on, that was that was a mistake, or you'd stop yourself and think, hang on, am I committing this fallacy? So the more you can um, familiarise yourself with these, the better. Okay, so the first type of fallacy that you have are fallacies of language. This one is called equivocation. Remember I said it's important that you define your terms? A term is used in more than retains the meaning of your term partway through your argument. So here's a silly example of um, an equivocation. If I say to you, I went to the bank this morning, okay, you think she went to get some cat and caught a fish. Then you realize, oh, she actually meant the river bank. Um, so there was an equivocation in our terms, you thought bankers in the institution that keeps the money, and I thought bankers is in the side of the river. Okay, so that's a look at this argument. It's an argument that Christian the Christians will sometimes use for um, God's existence. So they'll say, All natural laws, natural laws require a lawgiver. Okay. Now I think there is an equivocation. Okay, the term law is used in a slightly different sense in the second premise than it is in the first okay in the first premise what we mean by that is um, statements that as human beings we hold to we recognize and we keep people accountable to okay but natural law then you're recognizing order when we see it okay and so just because there is order and we call that a law the way doesn't imply in the same way that it needs a lawgiver. And so I think that argument commits a fallacy of just slightly changing the word. Um, I think a better one would be something like this. All instances of order are acts of intelligence. The laws of nature are instances of order. Therefore, the laws of nature require an intelligence. Can you see that in those two I used the word order in the same way, whereas in this one, law, is the, the meaning of law is slightly changed. There's a difference between the laws in our human courts and the laws of nature. They are subtly different things. Human laws imply lawgivers. Natural laws don't necessarily imply lawgivers. So law an rule versus a perceived rule? Yes, or I think... So see, see, some people would say moral laws are also sometimes perceived. Even if the law is not imposed, people know intuitively that it's wrong to kill an innocent person. But I I would argue the idea that we are held accountable to those laws is perhaps what... what, So we we have lawgivers who enforce those laws, if you want. The the laws of nature are not that. They are more regular instances and ways in which things happen. Um, And so that doesn't necessarily imply somebody who enforces them, if you want. So that's the the subtle difference there. Okay, so that's equivocation. There's also um, slanting. There's a lot of that in our time. So the use of language assumes the value or the disvalue of a thing in its description. So instead of arguing that something is good or right um, or... What are some of the other words that I have here for us? Valuable. Or instead of arguing that something is bad, incorrect, or invaluable, I sort of make the assumption and declare it in the way I speak about the thing already. So listen to this. Propaganda. Now, guess which side of the political spectrum a newspaper is if it uses the following terms. Pro-choice versus anti-choice. Mm-hmm. What are they saying? Choice is good and those who don't want choice are against choice mm-hmm. Well, are people who are fighting for the life of the unborn against choice? No That that's slanting it. It makes us look like something we're not okay, or here's another one um, pro-life versus anti-life that's also slanted um, Because you're saying those who are for abortion are anti-life. Well, that's a little bit broad it's only that they're anti-life in the sense of the unborn. They're not anti-life in the broad. So that's slanting that term in a negative way. So what should we say? Well, I think the best sort of neutral way to talk about it, if you want to make your argument, is pro-abortion and anti-abortion. Okay, those sort of it, they, the terms aren't as loaded, perhaps, as those. And so you have to be careful sometimes in the way you pre- you present. The terms by not sort of assuming their correctness before you've made the argument for them. And by almost sort of bl- um, blacklisting something before you've really shown that it needs that label. You're sort of swaying the audience just by the terms you use. So we call that slanting. Um, straw man. And so the picture you have here is of somebody furiously beating down one of these little um, scarecrows that we have around. And you think, yeah, I'm strong. I've just beaten up this little scarecrow. There's nothing, you know. and, And so in arguments, it's the same way. Basically, what you're doing is you're refuting an unfairly weak version of an opponent's argument. So you take a bad form of your opponent's argument, not the strongest argument. Let's say, for example, the atheist wants to refute arguments against the existence of God. He takes a really bad argument for the existence of God one that's not been thought through well, and he just destroys that argument with an argument of his own. Well, has he refuted the existence of God? No, he's refuted a strong man. If you want to refute the argument for the existence of God, you, stay, you take the strongest possible version of it, and you work on that. So here's an example. You'll sometimes hear atheists say this, Oh, with arguments for the existence of God... Um, something like this, everything that exists has a cause, the universe exists, therefore the universe has a cause, okay, that's what we call the, the sort of the first argument for the existence of God, and then they'll ask this question, they'll say, well, God exists, so who made God, okay, and it's like, yeah, well, I've knocked out that argument, you know, God is a thing who exists, so God needs a cause, so there we go, it's, you know, but that's actually not the argument that Christians put forward, that's not the strong version of the argument. The strong version of the argument, the first premise is different. It says, everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe had a cause. Mm -hmm. Okay, And so um, then, of course, the the question, um, God exists, well, that's irrelevant. The question is whether God began to exist. And so we say by our very definition, God is the being who didn't begin to exist, uh, always has been that is by very definition what mean, and so god doesn 't fall into the category of it. so the atheist has taken a weak argument, refuted the weak argument, but that 's just refuting a straw man, and in the same sense, Christians have to guard against it, not taking the weak atheistic arguments, bashing them down and thinking yeah we 're done with atheism no if you 're serious about interacting with the atheist, then you work with the best of their arguments and that 's with all theological discussions if a protestant Protestant wants to raise arguments against Catholicism. You don't take the weak ones. You so, you don't say, oh, you know, the infallibility of the Pope is false, because look at how badly these Popes lived. You know, they had bad lives. They were, some of them committed adultery. and Well, the, the Catholic argument is not that Popes are perfect in everything. It's just that they are infallible in their pronouncements. And that argument actually follows from tradition. Okay? So you are using a straw man argument instead of going to the tradition and questioning the actual arguments that they raise for it. So it's in all aspects of life that you've got to make sure that you're actually presenting your opponent in the best possible light before you you know, move in to, to argue against their argument. I have quite a few more, and I see that we've run out of time. I'll, I'll take about five more minutes just to address some of the main ones, if you don't mind. If you're starving, then <laughs> please get up and leave. <laughs> Um, Ad hominem, an argument addressed to the person Rather to the issue Oh goodness me, you see this So, oh yes, the political people Love this one So that's when I say something like this Poisoning the well is one, I'll say Well, since Christopher Hitchens He was one of those new atheists I put up there Had a rather sad and pathetic life His arguments against Christianity Cannot be taken seriously Does that follow? No It doesn't matter what his life was like if his arguments are valid and sound, his arguments are sound. I've got to argue against the argument regardless of what the person is like. Okay. Or another one we see sometimes is the genetic fallacy. We had this at an abortion clinic. A woman walked up to Simon and she said, I cannot accept your arguments against abortion because you are a man. Well, does my gender somehow determine whether my argument is correct or not? Whether I make the argument or Simon makes the argument, the argument is true regardless of our gender. Or sometimes you hear something like, oh, you're just a Christian because you grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where everybody's a Christian. Does that make Christianity false? No. It doesn't matter where you came to your belief. People will say something like, oh, Christianity is just an emotional crutch. You just you believe in Christianity because you're scared of death. Well, even if that were true, even if I believe in Christianity because I'm scared of death, does that make Christianity false? No. Christianity is true or false independent of how I came to the belief, whether my parents taught it to me, whether I was scared of death, whether, you know, I read the Bible by myself for the first time, whether Christianity is true or not is dependent of how I come to the belief. Okay? So those are Fallacies of diversion. The genetic fallacy, you find that very, very often where people will say, oh, such and such can't be true because this is the reason why people believe it. The reason why they believe it has nothing to do with whether it's true. You you have to address the argument by itself regardless of how they came to the belief. Um, okay, fallacies of diversion. Appeal to illegitimate authority. Now, it's. I think People would say it's legitimate to argue from based on authority because as human beings, we're limited in our knowledge. We're never going to know anything. And so we have to depend on authorities for certain things. I'm never going to be a molecular scientist. And so I have to trust the guys who are out there in the laboratories doing the work for their findings. I'm never going to be an engineer. I have to trust the engineer who studied for putting up the building and doing a good job of it. And so I think I'm perfectly justified in trusting those authorities, people who teach me things that I don't know. We all have to trust authorities. The question though is whether it is a legitimate authority. So when I hear Christians say evolution is false because Kirk Cameron says so, I go bad fallacy. Why? Because Kirk Cameron ain't no expert when it comes to these sort of things. You want to point to some of the molecular biologists. You want to point to somebody like William Dembski, um, you know, who's done just years and years of research in this and who is a true scientist. And you know, So you have to appeal to a legitimate authority. And Christians, unfortunately, we do, th- we do this in our celebrity culture. We uh, give authority. So I don't know if you saw the recent thing about the little girl in Harry Potter. What is her name? The actress. She is now a representative at the UN for women's rights. I don't think, is is, is she even in her 20s yet? So there she is representing women all over the world, going through all sorts of struggles, and she's hardly 20 years old. And I'm thinking, how is that for an illegitimate authority? Why should we listen to the arguments that this girl makes? Okay, in a sense, I I question her authority. She hasn't even lived a life of, for example bearing and raising children or um, struggling through a marriage or any of those sorts of things. And so I question, you know, her authority and the things that she say about it. Now, you've got to be careful because I can't make the genetic fallacy. I can't say just because she's 20, she doesn't know what she's talking about. So you have to sort of walk that tightrope between discarding her arguments simply because she's young, but then also giving her too much authority. That's another one we can look out for. fallacies of diversion. Another one, this is called ad baculum. It's the appeal to force. So we say something like, God is dead, Nietzsche said. Nietzsche's dead, God said. We sort of bully people into the thought. It's that turn or burn mentality, if you want. Um, Instead of actually breaking down Nietzsche's arguments carefully and showing where they fell short and showing why we don't agree with Nietzsche that God is dead, we just sort of try and scare people out of the argument. Okay, so if you don't Take something like global warming, for example, the big army of black. If we don't do something now, the whole world's going to be underwater in however long. Well, that's not really making your argument. That's just trying to scare us. That's just trying to strong arm us into a position. Give us your scientific research. Give us your arguments for it. Give us your proofs. Don't try and scare us. And so, um, as Christians, we often use judgment and the final judgment to try and convince people that way of christianity and i think it's actually a fallacious way of arguing diversion oh my children love this but mommy everybody has okay um, fallacy ad populum just because the man to do it therefore it's right because the masses think that it's right to live together before marriage therefore it just follows that everybody should do it okay argument ad populum. you have this all the time so for example Listen to this statement, how it's, the notion of a timeless truth is based on outmoded Greek metaphysics that we moderns have rejected. There's a little bit of slanting in there as well. You know, If you're modern and not outmoded like those Greeks, you reject this. But it's really saying the majority of people in the world have rejected the idea that there's timeless truth. You should do so as well. Well, that's hardly an argument against the philosophical idea of a timeless truth. This one is all over. The media and you know especially in sort of the way we understand democracy where it's everybody votes and then we go with that sort of idea the highest number of votes this is the direction we go well doesn't make it the right direction necessarily there are arguments to be made uh, we'll do two more and then we'll stop fallacies of diversion um, and ad-ignoration um, for example we know of no natural cause that could have produced that effect therefore it must have been a miracle just because I don't know the cause, I say, oh, miracle. Okay, um, that there's actually a fallacy. Sort of jumping to that conclusion just because I don't have. And as Christians, we've we've burnt our fingers with that sometimes, where we said, oh, this is the only explan- possible explanation for this can be God, and then a couple of months later, the scientists actually find a natural explanation for it, and we have to sort of eat our words. Well, now, when do you know instances of a true miracle? I was thinking about that this morning as I read through it. So I'm like, okay, I think. Um, instances of a true miracle would be where we've already established the physical process, yet this goes against it. So you think of Jesus turning water into wine. Or walking on water. water, right? This goes against what we've already established as the natural law and what what we accept as the way things are supposed to be happening. But if it's just something that we don't have an explanation for, to now say, oh, it's a miracle, we are arguing from ignorance. Um, And that is a fallacy. Well, make this one the last one so we don't miss lunch. Um, fallacies of oversimplification this one you get so often amongst Christians and that's quoting out of context so you'll say Jeremiah 11:29, God says for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans to prosper and not to harm you plans to give you hope and a future and so therefore every Christian is going to have a prosperous life really you want to say that to the Christians in Syria right now, the ones who are being beheaded for their faith? You want to say that to the Christian who's been diagnosed with cancer and is in a lot of pain? Or um, I think it's just, that's just a bad reading of the text. Why? Because you've taken that verse out of context. If you read the book of Jeremiah, what does it talk about? It talks about God's judgment on the nation of Israel. Most of what is described in there is really harsh. Okay, this is the way God will deal with them. Why? Well, in this case, the suffering is to bring them back to him. This is what they need in order to convince them. And so I can't just take this one little passage, which I think in any way applies to Israel as a nation more so necessarily than it does to us as individuals, and now say this is true for life. Can you see the problems? This is going to, This is word of faith teaching if you're a christian you're supposed to be prosperous otherwise something is wrong well the history of christianity just proves that wrong the verses before and after this in jeremiah just prove it wrong and so whenever somebody quotes something i was going to as part of the um presentation today show you a little youtube clip it's called um who is the real terrorist you can look it up it's it's very um it makes you angry you look at it and you're just like all especially if you're an american you you 'll look at it and you'll think oh there's something wrong with this 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 sky just makes me so angry i mean you, you sort of have to calm yourself down and you 've got to say okay what what is the logical fallacy here and i i'm not going to give it away i 'll say to you here yeah, um, there are two the one he does is quoting out of context. you can go and look at it and see if you can notice how he quotes out of context and the other one is actually um i have it on here i 'll just flip through it quickly um, Oh, there's a lot that we didn't get to. I'm sorry. I think it's called changing the question, ignoring the argument. There we go. Ignoring the argument or answering another argument than the one is given. Um so this one, for example, the argument that slavery is mor- morally wrong, it violates the basic human right. And then the girl comes back and she says, well, I can see how you say that, but you know that there were many slaves for who this was good because their owners treated them right and they were actually happy. And she makes this whole argument that they that there were slaves that were happy. Well, that's... A different argument. The argument is that slavery is wrong, regardless regardless whether the slaves were happy or not, because it's a basic human right that's being violated. And so she subtly changed the argument. So in Who's the Real Terrorist, see if you can notice the way that um, the guy who makes the sort of final argument is actually changing the argument. He ends up arguing for something completely different than what the clip is supposed to be about in the beginning. So like I said, I will um, I will give both the PowerPoint and my transcript here. It's not in, in that much detail, but I will give those to um, to Jeremy and Alison. And then at your own time, you can maybe work through the rest of these. And it's, it's really, it's fun in a sense to practice them once you know them, to think, yeah, there's a, you know, I pick up that fallacy. A couple of books that I thought I'd um, mention to you. Um, this one here is a really easy read. I think I have them. On the PowerPoint, just, yes, there. I have not listed on the PowerPoint on the final slide. This one's called the rule book for arguments. This is great if you have high school or college age students and they have to write papers in which they make an argument. This guy does a great job of talking about what is an argument, how do you go about building one, what are some of the fallacies you can make. And it's an easy, short read. Um, really good. This is a book on um, more formal logic. It's it's not too dense, it's not too hard, it's an easier one to read through. He's got little exercises that you can practice at the end. What I don't like about it is it doesn't have the answers in the back. I need the answers to go check whether what I'm doing is right. But um, this is an easy introduction to the whole, the three processes of the mind, that sort of thing. This is a more hefty one and um, by Peter Craved, but it's great. He has just loads of examples in there. Um, he also has exercises at the back. And you can sort of pick and choose your chapters. It gets a little technical here and there. He's a great writer. He's very humorous, um, very well read. So if you're, if you're getting into it, even if you can uh, have this on the side of the toilet and you know, read a couple of pages, it's the, it's the type of thing that you can only do a few pages on a day, and then you've got to go away and sort of think about it. So that's a good one. One that's maybe a little easier, easier to read and also has some, some good exercises is by Norman Geisler, um, Come Let Us Reason. Uh, an introduction to logical thinking. And then they will also make some recommendations for further reading if you want to go further with it. But these are all pretty good introductions. And it's a fun thing to do, especially if you can do it with somebody, with a spouse or a friend or so on, and and you can look at logical fallacies together and try and spot them. Okay. I'm sorry that that was so rushed. I hope that you got a little something out of it at least. Um, If you have any questions, we'll be around probably till tomorrow afternoon. So feel free to... Are you um, like if we were to get into a book and are you like reachable in school? Like is there a window where like, you can email you? Yes, yes, I like yes. You yeah, you, you can mm-hmm. yes, you are more than welcome to do that. And um, if I have not know the answer I have access to professors who do so <laughs> and other logic students who do. I I never actually took the formal class in logic at the seminary. I took one and there are various branches of logic as well. This is something you'll realize in the books. I think Socratic logic is the most practical one for us as human beings, just living, but there's mathematical logic and computational logic and all sorts. So, we had to take one in what is called symbolic logic, which is the way modern day philosophers present things. They use symbols. So, they present the argument without you even knowing what the premises are, they just represent them by letters, and you see whether it's true. You can follow the. It's more when you focus on the formal, the way the argument is built. But that's really useless sort of for the manuscript. So I had to take that one because I took the philosophy course and then I had to go back and do the regular logic for myself. And this is much more enjoyable and of much more practical value than, than the other one was. So yeah, I had to. And if I can do it by myself, then everybody can do it by themselves it, It's well. In fact, you know, when they taught logic in schools, kids used to do classes in logic at middle school age. That was the age at which they were introduced to to formal logic, logical arguments. And so yeah, I whenever I struggled with it I keep that in mind and I'm like, shame on me for <laughs> struggling with the things a thirteen year old could, could deal with. So we um the sooner we teach it the better properly, probably. Okay. Well